Many of you will know that Eaton Bridge Partners and I have been talking about mental well-being, particularly in its relationship to organisational performance for five years now. So this is our fifth event and we're absolutely delighted to welcome such a fantastic panel to um, come steer us through this morning. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Olivia Sharp and I'm a partner in our HR practice at Eaton Bridge. Um, there won't be anyone in this room who hasn't been impacted positively or negatively from a mental health perspective over the last 18 months. Um, and I'm really aware because so many people have told me already this morning that today represents a first for them, a first in-person event, a first time on the train, a first time meeting someone outside of their family bubble. So we're all going through those firsts and I'm really grateful that everyone has taken those steps with us um, today. We're incredibly fortunate at Eaton Bridge because our business has really gone from strength to strength over the last two years. Um, we've grown the number of clients, placed more people, um, grown our revenues and increased our headcount by over 20% just in the last 18 months. And we know how fortunate that makes us. Um, we've done all of that from our computer screens and we are undoubtedly very lucky that those things are true about our business. But we're still working out how do we come back together uh, like every other business, how do we reconnect with our purpose, with each other, and do that in a new world? Um, so to that end, I'm absolutely delighted to um, welcome such a fantastic panel to talk about that today, and they will be capably chaired by Karen, um, who's chaired this event now for five years. So I'd like to take an opportunity to thank you for your expertise, your time, and your input today. Um, I'll leave you with Karen. There'll be time for questions at the end, but if you desperately need to say something as we go through, I'm sure Karen will let you. Um, and I'll look forward to speaking to you all afterwards. Thank you. For those of you um, who don't know me, I'm a lawyer. Try not to hate me. Um, I specialise in disability discrimination and particularly in mental health issues. And I've been in that space now for, well, we've just started our 14th year as a business. Um, where we really focus a lot on dealing with mental health in the workplace. I'm really um, delighted to introduce our panel today. Um, I'm going to lead the conversation. It will flow rapidly. It will go all over the place because we've got a real mix of expertise up here. Um, Nathan Clements is our Chief People Officer at SSP Group. Um, he previously worked for Walgreen Boots Alliance where he was HRD for UK and Ireland. He's a passionate driver of change and has led cultural transformation. Um, next, we have Lauren, who is the founder of Women of a St Certain Stage. And just glancing around, I think there's quite a few of us here um, this morning. And for those of us who are not quite at that stage, you'll be there soon enough. Um, <laughs> Lauren runs um, an organisation which specialises in helping employers and employees to navigate um, the menopause, but also other um, aspects of women's health, things like baby loss, uh, menstruation, all the things that as women we go through throughout our lives and which inevitably will impact in the workplace to some degree or other. Um, next up we have Tom Cross, who is a Chartered Performance Psychologist. I gave him a slight distance at the beginning in case he started uh, <laughs> making any kind of analysis of me. Um, Tom has uh, worked in private equity, in the foreign office, Olympic sports, um, huge wealth of um, experience across FTSE 100 and 250 organisations. Um, he um, is uh, big on uh, talking about the relationship between performance of an organisation and mental health. Um, next up we have Jen, who is um, Head of Inclusion at the British Film Institute. Um, and has the best earrings in the room. <laughs> I'm going to try and get them off her before we leave. Um, Jen was voted as one of the top 30 most influential leaders of, in diversity and inclusion in 2020 and for this was awarded a special membership of BAFTA uh, for her outstanding contribution. And last but not least, Jay is a Director of Organisation and People Capability at Entain Group He's worked with various uh, sizes of organisation at different stages of their maturity, including Reuters, Monster and VMware. He's a well-known speaker and um, particular interest in talking about um, taking cultures beyond the symbolism of talking about mental health and virtue signalling and actually delivering cultural change on the ground. Um, I'm going to let the panel 
I've kind of done it for you, but I'm going to let the panel each have a couple of minutes just to tell you a little bit about themselves and what they bring to the table today. Jay, should we start with you? I was hoping Nibbin starts, okay. But <laughs> <laughs> that flipped, okay. Uh, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Olivia and team for having us here and good morning, everyone. Like everybody else, it's probably 20, 22 months since I've been on a stage, okay. And they had a ramp for the stage, which is great. Last time I was trying to get on a stage, there was no ramp, isn't it? Because I'm a wheelchair user, if you can't see me, okay. Uh, yes, as uh, Karen mentioned, I'm the di director of people and art capability at Entain. I've been there only six weeks, so it's been, you know, uh, baptism by fire. Uh, great gaming company trying to kind of pivot and become a more digital organization which lots of organizations have been trying to do but you know digital organization is not buying more computers isn't it okay it's about really changing culture okay and changing culture takes longer than procuring computers and a lot of organizations don't realize that and what i try and do is kind of hold the mirror to the leadership team saying that everything we talk it is very important that we do and I think in the last 18 months, what has happened, apart from, you know, cats coming on Teams calls, I think people's <laughs> idea of what is work and why I go to work has changed dramatically. And I don't think the leadership is really cognizant of that. From a leadership perspective, organizations think that what has only changed is people have started working from home. One day when we flip the switch, everybody will come back to the office and life will be back to normal. But that's not happening, isn't it? I'm sure all of you are reading about the great resignation and what is happening and it's just a, you know people say that's because there is more opportunities you pay more money people will stay i don't think that's the case isn't it you know the moment you start talking about compensation as a key lever for retaining talent it becomes transactional and i don't think people want transactional relationships with organizations anymore what people want is a connection with the organization simply because of what has happened in their lives in the last 18 months isn't it all our lives have turned upside down you know, we were the fortunate generation, I, I was telling someone yesterday, I read a book by Steven Pinker, The Futurist. I think I finished reading it on 10th March of last year, where in the book, he argued that this is the best time to be a human, okay? There are no big wars, there are, you know, uh, no pandemics, he said, okay? <laughs> and then I was like, very interesting, maybe I should give him a call, isn't it, okay? <laughs> when the pandemic happened. But we didn't know how to react to it. And as a result, all our priorities have shifted. You know, what matters to us today? I've not seen my family in India for the last two years. So nothing else matters to me than getting on a plane in December to go unless Boris decides, you know, politically, we'll put on a blacklist, red list, pink list, whatever <laughs> list, okay? So that's, and if my organization were to tell me you can't go to India because, you know, there's something to deliver, I'll make a choice, isn't it, okay? And that's what is happening. And uh, organizations have a great responsibility, I think, to kind of really understand the people and what their mental well-being and mental thinking has changed. Thank you, um, Jay. I mean, I think the way I describe it to employer, some of the employer clients I have who say, you know, when are we going to get back to how it was before? And I say, the genie is out of the bottle and it is not going back in. Yeah. And people have, have grasped that there is a different way of working. And it works better for, the, for, for my people, mm -hmm. it works better for me, so you know, why would we want to go back? Um, so I'm, if we're grateful to the pandemic for one thing, it's for changing the world of work really radically, really quickly, as far as I'm concerned, better. Jen, do you like to do a little intro? Thank you, Karen. Hi, everyone. Um, like for many of you, it's my first time out doing an event like this for a very, very long time. So I'm delighted to be wearing my favourite earrings and <laughs> giving them a, a moment. Um, I've been Head of Inclusion at the British Film Institute for nearly five years now. I came into that role from a completely different industry of working in social housing for 14 years, which I absolutely loved. And I think what's quite interesting for me is some of the challenges we face as the screen industries, but some of the issues that we face that are the same. So I'm really pleased to be part of such an esteemed panel today and learn from all of you because I think the cross-pollination of ideas about how we're collectively looking at good mental health in the workplace is a really important conversation to be having. And I'd also want to congratulate Eaton Bridge for the longevity of the conversation. I think sometimes in inclusion work, we can move on quickly to the next thing. And actually, my mantra and my belief at the BFI and elsewhere is always do less things, but do them really well and do them over a sustained period of time. And that's when you really start to see the impact of your endeavours. 
And I think, you know, another thing that I've always been really clear about, that this work done well is not a solo endeavour. We don't have to solve these problems by ourselves. We can talk to each other. And it's really nice to um, be uh, employed by the BFI, but now work so closely within my own industry and have the connections with BAFTA and other organisations that are seeking to do this work. Our world's got a little bit smaller and our industry really benefits for that. Um, interestingly, post-pandemic, production is booming. Everybody is desperate for crew. There are lots and lots of great films that are coming out over the next couple of years, you'll be delighted to know. But that makes our working conditions and our employment culture really important because there has been a mindset in the past that you're so fortunate to come and work in film. This is a luxurious, glamorous industry. You're very, very lucky to have this job. You know, you need to work very long hours, you need to put up with poor behaviour, etc. That's changing. We're a freelance industry. People can make their own choices about where they want to work now. So this is a very timely conversation for us as we're on the cusp of change. We're going through a two-year business transformation at the BFI. Um, but what we do has a wider impact and reverberates across our industry. And I also think we have societal impact as well. So what we do matters because imagery is persuasive. You know, I heard a brilliant phrase yesterday, representation <coughs> rewires your brain to new possibilities. So I think it's an exciting moment to be part of the room, have the conversation. And um, I'm happy to tell you all of our stories and where we've got to so far in our journey, but I'm also really excited to learn from you. Thanks, Jen. Tom. <coughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, Tom Cross. I'm a performance psychologist. So I was just thinking about, you know, the world of work has changed. Well, the exec coaching that I do and the C-suite CEOs that I coach, comment from a CEO the other day said, I've had six conversations today that I wouldn't have had if I wasn't in work, if I wasn't in the office. And I'm, I'm going to get everyone in the office, I need everyone to be in the office. You know, so, yes, you might think the world of working has changed, but the people at the top, some, some of them, it, it's going to go back to how it was, or they want it to go back to how it was. So, it's really interesting um, coaching people like that and how, how we can support them to maybe think differently, to actually to, to, to support them to think that what gains can they get from thinking differently. Um, and the other thing which was interesting just hearing that as well was um, BFI is all freelance. So I've worked in elite sports, I've worked in Olympic Games, I've worked in professional cricket, rugby and football. They're not freelance. Again, you're very lucky to work in sport. You're here. We're going to pay you not much maybe to work 24-7 and seven days a week. I actually came out of sport. I've got three young kids. My wife's a clinical psychologist. She has her own practice. We sat down and just thought sport's not for me. I, I can't commit every weekend and evenings to sports. So kind of made a choice, but some people don't have that choice. Um, it's just really interesting how we can support people making work-life balance decisions, um, balancing money and purpose and value and their dreams. Um, how, how can we support them? Um, just a couple other things. I'm, I'm very, um, resilience to me is a very interesting word. Um, quote from John Kabat-Zinn, who's kind of one of the, one of the guys in mindfulness, he, he says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf, um, which, which I always remember. Um, but, well, you know, people fall off. Um, and I don't think we have the structure in place to support people falling off that surfboard. Um, because not everyone can learn to surf. <laughs> so how do we support people um, doing that? So, yeah. We're looking forward to speaking and learning and seeing where this conversation goes. There's so many different avenues we can go. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, Lauren, we're um, in baby loss week this week. Some of you may know that, some of you may not. Um, and I'm sh maybe there are some people here affected by it. And also on Monday we have World Menopause Day. So right in your space here, tell us about what you're Let me take you back to the 5th of November. <coughs> Excuse me. The 5th of November, 2014. I was really excited because it was my birthday and my boss had called me in for a meeting, <laughs> which in itself was quite unusual because normally we would just catch up on the way into work or between meetings and he'd headhunted me twice at two different firms as a senior executive in financial services and I absolutely loved my job. So as I walked up the stairs into his office, you know those glass goldfish bowls, opened the door, went in to sit down and he's staring at me. Lauren, we need to talk. I'm sorry? I, uh, what's, what's up? 
It's been noticed that you've been walking around this place as if you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. It's not exactly becoming of a female senior leader in this organisation, is it? I, I, I don't understand. I mean, last week I got my bonus and top leader award, top team award. Frankly, I think you were happier when you were doing that personal training job of yours that you used to do. Something for you to think about tonight when you go home. Let me tell you, whatever self-esteem, self-confidence I had when I left that office that day evaporated. In a few short months, I'd left that job. I'd left thinking I'd early onset dementia. So imagine my surprise when my doctor turned around and said, to be sure, Lauren, you've just been through a premature menopause. I was in my early 40s as a sole parent of a child with lifelong medical needs. I sat staring at four walls for five months, not knowing what side which way was up. I thought I was going to have to rock in a corner somewhere, being looked after in a home while someone else raised my son. When I heard that it was just menopause, I was the happiest menopausal woman in Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> Go me, right? That got me to thinking that surely to goodness I couldn't be the only person that had gone through that type of experience. I set up menopause socials, I got women together and we started talking and I discovered that over 90% of women neither know what menopause really is nor how to get the help and support to manage their way through it. Organisations are committing to 25, 30% and some of, my some, of the, some of my clients now 50% female leaders. But they're not doing the work to create a landscape where women who have changes in their hormones on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis can thrive. So we have to change the narrative. We have to put the conversation into place so that we can start to talk and understand how we can create an environment and a culture where women can flourish in the workplace. So I'm Lauren Churin from Women at a Certain Stage and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you here today. Thank you, Lauren. Nathan. Oh, bloody hell. No. <laughs> <laughs> Follow that. <laughs> I'm feeling a hug coming on. This is, this is entirely not fair. I thought we all agreed to be a bit kind of mediocre just to give me some space. Um, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Nathan Clements. I am indeed the Chief People Officer for SSP. Um, you probably don't know what SSP is, but if you've come in through a travel hub, the chances are you've seen one or, if not, all of our units. Um, so Starbucks, M&S, you probably bought something from M&S on the way through. Burger King, probably less likely this morning. Uh, we have our own upper crust and Millie's Cookies and so on and so forth. And, and we're in, we're, we're that type of business in uh, train stations, airports, um, uh, motorway services around the world, basically 36 countries. And we have 50 or so dialects, um, which is brilliant. So actually we're about, we're 36 little organisations all rolled up to, into one. Why am I telling you that? Uh, because we stopped at the start of the pandemic, pretty much went down 90% and we are in massive growth. So we went from 40,000 colleagues to 20,000 colleagues and over the, in the next year and 18 months we're going to go back to that. And the vast majority of our colleagues are frontline colleagues, they're around national living or national minimum wage depending on where you are in the world. Many of them are still in, on furlough, uh, we're still taking decisions to let people go because we're going into further lockdown around, around the world. So it's a very fascinating, interesting part. Um, I feel my role around the, the, the exec table is to be the voice of both the colleague, that colleague primarily, and indeed the, the customer, because if we can get it right for our colleagues, then indeed they'll get it right for our customers. And if there ever has been a role for leadership, then it's now. I truly believe that the frontline role, the frontline manager role, is one of the most, if not the most difficult uh, leadership role by a country mile. Mostly because, and this is a good thing, but equally a challenging thing, you are leading the most diverse group of people because they're working for a whole variety of different reasons, they're coming from a whole variety of different backgrounds, there isn't the same uh, sexism, racism, ageism that sometimes permeates the more senior positions either consciously or unconsciously and our, and our business is not good enough at a certain point um, and I don't help that numerically but I'm certainly going to help it as a voice and an advocate of change um, and the leadership piece of course is about the task uh, but work is so much more than the task and I'm not surprised we're having the debate around in work and out of work, working from and all that kind of good stuff. I have slightly different perspectives than, than some around the table, but that's, I think that's, see, see that as richness. So that diversity of challenge at the frontline role is a real thing. So how do you bring people? How do you grow people? How do you see the whole person? So it's not just about the task. It always was about the task, but it's not just about the task. What are they bringing to work? 
that is their start point from today. So I thought, I thought to myself, if I was going to measure myself out of 10 today, and you might wish to do the same, where would I put myself in terms of how I'm feeling about myself? Other than the nerves of sitting here and looking at some wonderful people, most I've never met before actually, I thought I'd, meet, I'd see a, a few more faces. I think I'd be about a 7. I think I'm typically about an 8, maybe a 7, and if I was being a bit more honest, I'm probably feeling out of a little bit about 6, but I can feel that that 6 is going to a 7 and back to an 8. And I just know that that security, the fact that I'm now talking and no one's walking out or laughing at me, it's all that good stuff. But so, so, the, so if you can do that at a population level, if you can help people uh, bring themselves to work, and if, yes, of course, it's about skill, yes, it's about purpose, yes, it's about resilience. But ultimately, you could, if you defined it into a word, it'd be about confidence. And if, you can, if we could all have a bag of confidence as we walked out, I bet every one of you would uh, pick that up on the way out. You might not pick a book on mental health because you say, I've got that, I've got too many books, I need less. But you'll all pick up a book of uh, the bag of confidence. I know I would be holding you back because I'd be stealing as many as possible, frankly. So <laughs> that's the point. Purpose, uh, going back to the question, purpose, resilience and connection, it's all mixed into that for me. Um, and if you can create purpose, you can help people build resilience, connection, but ultimately the thing that's sitting beneath it for me is confidence. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I reckon I'm about a 10 right now because I'm so happy to be out <laughs> Brilliant. and I'm really happy to see people and just that energy that you get from other people and also we can do something really interesting here today because if one person leaves and makes one little change, job done and probably will have a greater impact than that. So, um, you know, I think it's wonderful that five years we're still having this conversation which will go on forever because we always can improve. I think um, we should perhaps stay with the theme of leadership just to start with because we know that uh, any kind of DNI drive is driven from the top. Um, you've got to get the buy-in to your point um, uh, about uh, Tom about you know talking to a CEO who's like you know get everybody back in. Um, I certainly, when I created my own firm, I decided to be the antithesis of every kind of law firm I'd ever dealt with or worked in in my life because they are really unhealthy environments. And high stress naturally because you're dealing with distressed people, but you don't then have to have internal stresses and you don't need to have the long hours culture. And sometimes you do because you've got a trial and you've got to get ready the night before or whatever. But um, I think it's really important as as a leader of a team to signal to other people that it's that they have to take care of themselves, that they should switch off, that they are going to get nagged if they send me an email on a Sunday. And because I want to know, because I don't want anybody to be working those hours. And it's up to them if they want to do a bit of extra to catch up or whatever. But there's no expectation that that should be there. And I think to me, that's one of the primary roles of a leader. And when we're talking about mental health in the workplace is to signal these things um, and to bring about the change of culture, which we know is really, really difficult. I don't know who would like yeah. to, Tom, uh, yeah, have your points I mean, to. I'm going to copy. Uh, we all had a meal last night and kind of had a really nice time. And uh, Jay kind of summarized <laughs> some really interesting stuff. Uh, and one of the main things I loved what Jay said yesterday was that you can put into place all these kind of um, techn technological interventions, but it's actually what the leader does and what your leadership does is the most important thing. You can put in um, headspace, you can put in an HR system, you can put in whatever you want, but actually what do your role models do? Um, and since I work in one of my clients I work in, they have one-to-ones on a Sunday. And um, seven days a week working is, is, is kind of normal. And I'm just finding this out and it's interesting because it starts at the top. Um, I've never heard it before. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, for me, that's the antithesis of, 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 of what a good, you know, yeah. I call it a psychologically informed environment up high. So how can you get a psychologically informed environment and what do you need to do in order to get a psychologically informed environment? Um, and I go back to my EIS days, which is the English Institute of Sport, which is the main scientific support body behind Olympic and Paralympic sport. When I was there, the athletes, you have a performance lifestyle advisor, which I think is a role we need to think about in the corporate world. Um, and, I had, and we had one of the best. I worked for GB Women's Hockey post-Beijing through to London. I had a, a great lady who still works there, um, Emma Mitchell, and she's, she's, she's an absolute diamond. And she's a performance lifestyle advisor, looks after the, the athletes outside of performance and everything else around their life. And yes, they're young athletes, they're young people they need, need but you know, it's kind of like we have a coach and we have a, you know, I just, I just wonder what, what else can we imagine in our, 
systems and organizations that can support individuals. Yeah. I'm sure other people can. <coughs> yeah. Can I? Yeah. Uh, so, just to add on to what Tom said, the, the last 18 months, apart from the pandemic, as obviously seen the Black Lives Matter movement and now the focus on mental health, you know, the space of DNI, those who probably are in that space, has exploded, isn't it? You know, there are so many. I think there was a time last year that I was not looking for a job between October and December. I actually then created a spreadsheet just for my own, you know, fun. I got approached by 23 firms, you know, for a DNI role, and some of them were interim. Okay, <laughs> that was the most interesting thing, isn't it? <laughs> Come for six months and put a DNI strategy. Wow, wow, fantastic! What we've not solved in hundred, hundreds of years, I'm going to come and solve in six months. <laughs> Superman! I felt very good. Okay, <laughs> and it's it's all moved up. I think everybody's done a good talk, isn't it? Lots of organisations have done a good talk, but how much it will sustain and change? I think what Jen mentioned earlier. Any of these things are long-term cultural changes and it needs fortitude, isn't it? Okay. I think the classic example is Amazon. No, not saying Amazon's great in diversity and all that, but the, 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 the fact that they said we won't care about stock price or profits, but we will care about customer obsession and then profits will follow. It's the same kind of fortitude organizations need to have when it comes to things like DNI. We will stick to it. It's going to be expensive, painful and stuff like that, but then we'll stick to it so that we see meaningful change happen and not wine and cheese evenings where you talk about stuff and then everybody forgets about it, isn't it? And my worry is, it's the same thing with mental health. Today, everybody is talking about it. There's lots of symbolism. You know, we give one day in the year off for people and everybody posts pictures on LinkedIn. Great. Okay. What happens after that is the question. Okay. Are our leaders ready to kind of make employees work days very similar to the day off okay where people were relaxed people were at performing at their best some people probably even worked on that day but did it with a lot of joy isn't it so can leaders kind of recreate that environment can that happen overnight no because until now leaders have been taught to be you know decisive you know focus on performance and coaching and stuff like that but what you need now is a very different style of leadership and i think if organizations can figure out what it is, which can make leaders more human, which ideally we all should be, but not all leaders sometimes think from that perspective, I think performance will automatically follow. And one last thing I want to say is lots of industries, I know, lot, you know lots of industries like uh, Nathan's uh, hospitality got suffered during the pandemic, but lots of industries did really well, isn't it? Performance has really shot up. And if businesses believe that's the new normal, they're wrong. You know, people kind of went out of the way. Nobody knew how to kind of manage this situation. So everybody just worked hard to prove that we can work from home and whatever else. So the performance catapulted. But if you expect another 20% growth on an already 120% growth, and if you don't hit it, you're not performing well, I think organizations are getting it wrong, isn't it? So it's very important to see high performance doesn't always equate to high engagement. And that's why you're seeing this whole great resignation story, isn't it? 60% of people in white collar jobs are thinking of leaving their current employment. And I am an example of that. I left my job six weeks ago. And one of the reasons was the organization's culture didn't meet with the values of mine. I was very, very well paid. I probably took a small pay cut in my new job, but it was just that culture which didn't really match. So that's where we have to be really careful about how as HR professionals, if I'm assuming some of us are HR professionals here, really coach our leaders to think differently. Jen, you're nodding furiously, so you clearly want to pile in at that point. Well, I told Jay he's already come to the BFI, so um, we need him to speak to our colleagues because he's got such brilliant insight about the work that he does. Um, one of the things we did early on in the pandemic as a group of DNI leaders across a range of industries was came, come together and say, what do we need to tell our leaders right now? And we came up with three things and we crystallised it into the three E's and we thought about people's environment, empathetic leadership and expectation. So we had to be really cognizant as leaders that everybody's environment had changed. You know, people were having uh, colleagues beamed into their living room, which is actually, you know, invasive to some people's privacy. Um, you know, there were lots of different dynamics at play with children, with, you know, living arrangements, if people were in flat chairs, etc. So people's environment was entirely different. 
Therefore, our leadership needed to be much more empathetic to accommodate for that, and we need to temper our expectation. I think there's a real danger to the glamorisation of overworking because you cannot pour from an empty cup. And I think that one of the best books I've read about leadership and culture recently is a book by John Amici, who's a cultural commentator. And I think we, when we discussed last night, we talked about you know, this seamless interaction between culture, between inclusion and between well-being and how they all correlate and how they're all kind of... I was going to say two halves of the same coin, but they're three things, so... You can't have a three-sided coin. But, you know, they're really, really important. And how the culture of our industry moves on and adapts is absolutely fundamental to people's well-being, as we've seen in the industry um, over the years. I think we're also very conscious about how much easier it is to have digital presenteeism. So when you're engaging with your colleagues in one-to-ones and so on, it's much easier to say, no, I'm absolutely fine, I'm fine. You know, there's no problem. And kind of turn off your screen and actually not be fine. So, I mean, my feedback to my lot, my execs and our CEO was, you have to be relatable role models here. You have to set the right tone. And we have to be really, really careful in terms of expectation about giving feedback with kindness and respect. So nobody in the BFI is allowed to give feedback on email anymore. You have to pick up the phone and you have to have a conversation and you have to follow the aid model around the action you took, the impact it had and the desired outcome. Now, we're getting better at it, <laughs> we're practicing, but I think it's a really, really good rule of thumb because particularly in a digital environment or particularly on email, people can extrapolate different meaning from what you're saying. You think it's perfectly fine, but how it lands with that person can have a really detrimental impact mm. on their mental health, their well-being, or their connection and engagement with your organisation. So, you know, my colleagues are, oh my goodness, what fresh hell is this, Jen Smith? What are you making us all do now? (laughs) But I think, you know, it's really good to test new strategies and how we think about our behaviours and how, as Jay said, you move away from being a really task-orientated organisation driven by lots of pressures, you know, media interest and scrutiny in what we're doing around inclusion screen industries, you know, lots of political interest for us as well, all of the time pressures, all of the budget pressures, but also ensuring that, you know, if you actually invest in your behaviours and the tone and culture, that pays dividends because people stay with you and they grow. And you have that loyalty and that engagement, which I think is the key to performance rather than focusing on sort of task because burnout in our industry is very high. So, you know, it's a really, it's a commercial issue for us, actually, in terms of retaining great talent in our industry, not losing that skill set, treating people well, I think, and inclusion is a commercial strategic imperative. It costs money when people leave. Yeah. Um, and it costs disruption to other people. It makes other people question why, why are they leaving. Um, it's incredibly um, damaging uh, for, 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 for an organisation. Um, Lauren. I think we have to stop asking people, how are you? (laughs) Seriously. Because no one hears that question anymore. It's lost its meaning. How was your morning? What did you do yesterday? What have you got on your plate for later on this afternoon? Open a conversation with someone and ask them what they're up to, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, where they need help and support. But please stop asking people, how are you? Because it just goes straight over someone's head. And it's never going to give you any insights into how they really are, how they're really feeling, or what's really going through their minds at all. So I just invite you to get creative with how you interject with the people you're interacting with. If my boss had actually asked what was going on for me, I might have found a way to open up and explain that I hadn't slept for 18 months, that I was already struggling to get words out of my mouth in meetings. I might have shared a little bit of what the experience I really had was, rather than leave that place of work. So just get creative and think of other ways that you can invite people to open up. Get curious about who they really are and what they really think. And that way, I think that's something that with my clients, you know, whether I'm coaching or I'm working on menopause, it's just finding creative ways to get people to open up who otherwise might not. And I certainly know the female leadership that I work with The more senior a woman gets, the less likely she's going to ask for help and support because she sees it as a sign of being weak or vulnerable. I know that I would never, I was one of 18, I was the only female in my team, and there was no way I was putting my hand up publicly and asking for help and support. I got out of that place sooner 
than risk doing that. And yet the crazy thing is that we wouldn't ever witness someone we loved or cared for or a child suffering or being in pain. We'd go and get them help and support straight away, right? So let's help us help ourselves and the people around us know that it's okay to go and ask for help and support. In fact, it's a sign of strength. That was just what was on my mind. Nathan, did you want to come up? Yes, uh, and I'll continue to follow along, although if you, <laughs> we'll have to agree what you're going to say next. Sorry. The, um, I think the, the, the fact that you're coming up with practical tips is brilliant, and I'm starting to write these down, and just having things you can do and use which transcend any population, transcend any in industry. I guess the, the, the sense of there's one new way of working, there's one kind of emerging future of workplace, I, I, I do struggle with, because I, by population size, the vast majority of the workforce in just pick this country have continued to have to go to work uh, throughout the entire pandemic for a whole variety of reasons. Just let's stick with the NHS, let's stick with pharmacists, you know, let's stick with uh, transport, let's think, you know, where, where does the food come from, delivery drivers, blah, blah, blah. You know, probably not us, but we may or may not know people who work in those industries, right? But they are, so the, these practical tips are brilliant because you can apply those into leadership settings. I get slightly tired personally with the whole workplace in and out of work stuff uh, because it's, you're segmenting into um, effectively, um, forgive me, middle class, people in detached houses or significant houses where office, office space is fine. Um, and I, cause I don't think there's just one way for office based populations either. So, I, so the age old graduate, who do you learn from? I'm living in a bedsit. I'm in a, I'm in, there's five of us in the house. Wi-Fi is very expensive and broadband is intermittent. I'm desperate to see people. I haven't had a girlfriend. I haven't had sex for two years and I'd really like it. Whatever, right? Just to be controversial. So, I, so the risk is this, this conversation on workplace becomes less, you know, single, dig, single digit percent of the entire population. I'm more interested in what is effectively a much more diverse population, working for different reasons, struggling with different financial, mental and physical challenges. The large unseen, but actually the people that we expect to serve us, look after us and tend us when we're ill. That's, that's where the really interesting thing comes. And that's why these practical com conversations, the do differently, the frameworks, the threes, I love that type of stuff, where you can actually be practical and give people uh, a mechanic, a, a set of scaffolding as a leader, in wherever you are in the organisation, to do practical things. To do practical uh, things. And we touched on, earlier when we were chatting, we touched on this connection between um, financial well-being and mental health in the workplace as well, and that being an extra stressor. And I, I referenced a company that I've dealt with who specifically have you know, a helpline for their employees, uh, for debt, um, that sort of thing. It goes to your point about... Um, you know, I, I look at my life and I have a desk job and I can do my work from home and my team can do the work from home and we're all very happy working from home, but we are in a little bit of a bubble, um, you know, because we're in well-paid work yep. and we don't have the same kind of stresses that a lot of people have. Um, so I wondered if you wanted to just comment about that whole financial well-being. Yeah, sure. Uh, again, it's, it's often the bedrock of any conversation. I mean, physical comes whether you like it or not, mental comes, but, the, but one of the great informants of uh, mental well-being is can I afford to put food on the, my own table? Can I afford to pay the rent? I know I've got bills, they're sitting there looking at me, um, and, 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 and I can't get access to cheap credit because I know I'm a, I, my population, for whatever reason, is seen as, as bad debts, less high risk. Um, I am lucky enough to do a, a business advisory with a company called Salary Finance, some of which we know, which helps people get out of uh, payroll debt and loan sharks. And it's a, it's a direct payroll piece. I won't do the sales pitch, but if you're interested, go look. There are many other financial wellbeing organisations out there. But the point about that is um, we don't know, unless we ask, what people are bringing into the, to the organisation. So I, I love the cup metaphor. People might be arriving into work with, I've got real problems with debts, and, and my partner's just lost the job. We're now a single income family. And I've got, um, I've got things that I'm worried about from a health point of view, and this is massively impacting my, my mental well-being. And, you know, I really, and I've got to focus. I've got to, I've got to listen to the purpose. I've got 10 things to, to remember to do. And my boss is on me because they're on a bad day as well. So if their cup is super full, you put uh, workplace pressure on them, stress, accountabilities, you know, bad performance management or, whatever, or no performance management, silence, you know, cold shoulder, whatever you want to do it, before you know it, you're overflowing. And that's, that, that person has an overreaction. And it's like, 
well, if you don't see the whole person, but the bedrock is so often financial. Um, and I'm not sure, mental health conversations are hard, financial conversations are equally hard, particularly with certain genders, right? So we all know that for a whole variety of different reasons. But, but trying to see the whole person, uh, asking different questions, so you, or, fi or at least having a system by which they can go to those kind of places. It doesn't have to be the leader, it can be a friend. Some people we know do this stuff brilliantly. We can all think instantly of the person in our organisation who has a wonderful team, great tenure, all that kind of good stuff. They don't know they're doing it necessarily, they do it. But for the rest of us, we need to learn, and that's why these practical hints and tips. But th seeing those three things of physical, financial, financial being the bedrock and, and mental, they kind of they have to work in harmony. This brings us back to the, 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 the persistent theme, which has been about the whole person. And I'm always saying to people that work for me, you know, tell me as much as you want you know you don't you don't have to share anything but if you do want to share if you've got something you know um it's going on you know, whatever's going on in your private life is going to impact your person your, your work life you can't just switch it off uh, whether it's childcare, whether it's home renovations whatever it might be um and i and i hate that that feeling that people would ever think they'd have to come to work and and switch into you know, an alter ego um I, I i don't know if you want to talk about that um from a sort of performance psychology point yeah, of view? Yeah, I mean, one, th one thing comes to mind straight away is that some people don't understand the impact that has on themselves because uh, they don't have the space or the time to unpick it. Um, so, what, I mean, I, for me, high performance or just any performance starts at self-awareness. So what, what, what things have you got going on in your life that allow you to increase awareness? What stuff do you do individually? What's, what, how's the environment supporting you? How's your team supporting you? How's your leader supporting you? To increase your self-awareness. That when you have self-awareness, you can then go to step two, which is self-regulation or coping strategies. So I have this link between self-awareness and self-regulation. And those two, for me, are the, the bedrock to not even just high performance, but just well-being and performing to your potential. Um, because you, if you've got awareness of maybe dysfunctional thinking, maybe it's catastrophizing, maybe it's black or white thinking, maybe it's mind reading, whatever, you can then put in a self-regulation strategy, a coping strategy in order to manage that dysfunctional thinking. That then allows you to feel more a sense of control. That sense of control allows you to feel more confident and confident people tend to go and perform really, really well. So for me, it starts from performance, you go all the way back up the chain to self-awareness and self-regulation. And what is that? Is it journaling? Is it, is it 360 degree profiles? Is it psychometrics? Is it line managing? Is it just a good husband or wife or friend? Is it is it therapy? Is it coaching, mentoring? There's so many things that I think we can all, all, all individually look for. But it's, for, for me, for mental, well, mental um, well-being, it's what self-awareness you have about it and what things do you have in place and what things can your work environments put in place to support that, that kind of unearthing of awareness to really understand how I'm feeling. Some people, you see those, I love those wheels that you see on LinkedIn now with those emotions and you go out one and there's another emotion and it kind of opens up to another five emotions and that emotions up to another ten emotions. And, you know, things like that can help you as practitioners help other people, help yourself, number one, but then help other people to really identify and label what is going on. Because um, the self-aware person, I think, is, is, is a high performer or has the, has the potential to perform to their potential. And that sort of feeds back into the, the leader role, doesn't it? Where if you are um, able to demonstrate some of those tr traits, self-awareness, mm -hmm. self-regulation, and, and you make it clear to others in the organisation that I mean, it's easy in a small organisation, mm -hmm. easier like, like mine, where you can say, you know, you have permission to finish at five o'clock, do it. You know, if you've done your work, go home. Mm -hmm. um, bigger organisations, harder. Um, how do you grapple with all the different levels of management? How do you get everybody um, putting this sort of into place and getting everybody going in the same direction, which is sort of what you have to do, um, Jen, sort of herding cats sometimes, maybe. <laughs> there is quite a bit of cat herding, which is sometimes enjoyable and other times challenging. Um, but I'd like to pick up on some of the points that Nathan said and talk about a bit about um, an intersectional approach to mental health. So I think that's really, really important. and. You know, with us, we have a very diverse workforce at the BFI where we're only shut for one day a year, usually. We're only shut on Christmas Day. We have a lot of people that operate shift work. And some of the conversations that we had early on was who's going to be sat at home on furlough 
with their heating off because mm. they can't afford to put it on. In mm. terms of our lowest paid workers, we have to protect them and we have to really think about them and really be cognizant about the impact of being out of your, your work environment and you know, doing the role that you love. Our visitor services assistants are the lifeblood of our cinema. You know, they, they greet our public when they come into the venue. They love what they do. They're brilliant. Um, I think it's really important to have a great kind of inclusion strategy overall, but you also have to address your biggest deficits. So for us, I wanted us to address race equality and disability equality. So I have those specialisms within my team. And Rico, who's our race equality lead, said, I think we need to look at our employee assistance helpline. I want to know the data, who calls it, and what we can do differently. So we've made some changes in place after the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. And we recognised that we wanted to give our colleagues a choice if they wanted to speak to somebody ethnically diverse, that they could call the employee assistance helpline and have that choice in place. So we did that. We also looked at the makeup of our mental health first aiders across the organisation and essentially we have a universal set of targets basically that we bring into play in terms of who are our audiences, what are we putting on player, who are the filmmakers, what does our workforce look like and who do we fund. So we all have a kind of set of targets in our head that we know what good looks like, we know what we're aiming to hit, we know how near or far we are away from it and that's become part of our organisational DNA. And it was really important that board felt very confident when we had some zeros in there. We're a public body, we have to be accountable. And if we're at zero, then we need to change our strategy and do things differently. So be confident, be accountable and put it in the public domain. And actually, we had zero um, in one area for one year, but it drove our strategy to be much closer to the target and we've made such incremental shifts in that area of neurodiversity, we've actually become an autism friendly accredited venue. So it drove our budget and our energy to the right place by being open and honest about our deficits and being really kind of accountable and making the change and using your, your energy and your resources to solve your biggest problems. Um, I want to change the conversation up slightly because we're getting a little bit low on time. I want to allow a bit of time for questions, but um, we, we've, we would thinking about um, purpose and connection um, and you know certainly during lockdown and shielding I was incredibly grateful to have a job I love um, because I don't know what I've done with myself quite frankly if I couldn't go out and you know couldn't do anything um, it's the pandemic has made us all think about what are we doing with our lives um, I know people that have made radical decisions quite a few divorces that, that sort of thing but you know it's made people think um, but I also think it is ushered in definitely a more kind approach to certain um, aspects. I mean, I, I remember a conversation I had with somebody who was on the other side of one of my cases, which normally might be quite fighty, and I called this, this lady, and I oh, know it was a man, I called, I called the guy on the other side, works at a big city law firm, and as I picked up the phone, I just heard, and his baby started crying, and he was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed, and I was like, forget about it. We're all working from home. My dog's probably going to bark in a minute. Um, but we dealt with one another in a way, in a different way than we would have done pre-pandemic. And there's just that bit more tolerance, um, a bit more sort of kindness and compassion because we've all been in the same boat. That's probably something we want to keep going in our, in our organisations and which really should be up the agenda. I don't know what thoughts you've got on that, Abs Jay. I think absolutely. Uh, the... You know, what Nathan mentioned around financial well-being, the other very important aspect of well-being in my book is also social well-being. You know, so what can organizations do in terms of bottling up this kind of kindness and a different kind of empathy which we all developed, isn't it? And more so to the point what Jen was making, the, the invisible, the, the minorities who are mostly invisible, especially, you know, people from black ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, people with mental health challenges, I think probably suffered more during the pandemic because to make your presence felt on a Teams or a Zoom call is more challenging for someone who is a bit more underconfident. But the fact that people were able to invite them into conversations and I think those things need to happen in the workplace as time goes by. And this is where you know, HR professionals like all of us have a huge responsibility to continuously keep reminding our leaders, managers, you know, I think there needs to be a big change in the way we look at leadership development, you know, I've just joined Entain, 
one of the things we are really looking at is teaching our frontline leaders. You know, we, we do stuff like leading with purpose, etc. at the top level, isn't it? But the key thing is, how does our frontline leaders think about it? Okay. What does purpose mean for them? You know, for them, you know, if you were to take a big purpose, how does it really connect to the frontline leader and how do they translate it to the employees who they manage on a day-to-day -day basis has become very important. So, there's a big question, oh, why does it matter? Why should somebody in the retail estate know about purpose? Because they come, they do their job in a very transactional way and go on. Absolutely. But then, can, can they do it, the transactional work in a, with a bit more empathy towards the customer, towards their colleagues around is very, very important. So, that's a big focus area we're looking at. The other area is how, to, how do you really then incorporate some of the good things we did around including people uh, of all dimensions in those virtual meetings and conversations. How do we do it in a hybrid fashion? Because I think the big challenge is lots of the leaders and all of us develop good muscles to manage people when you are in real life. Okay. We kind of muddled and learnt a bit quite rapidly during the virtual world, but now this is a new dimension, isn't it? You know, there are some organizations which are fully still physical, but in most of the office-based companies, uh, the hybrid nature of working is throwing up completely new challenges. So, how does, how do I, as a manager, if I've got three people, and there's a single mom at home who can't come to the meeting, but there are two people in the office. How do I make sure that the single mom at home who's caring for the sick child is still able to contribute without feeling guilty that they're not there? And that's not easy, isn't it? Okay. And that's the level of empathy which we need to kind of really thinking. Do we have answers? No. I think this is the great opportunity for us to kind of think about these areas. We could try. We could try. <laughs> Lauren, I was actually thinking Nathan was about to say something. Um, well, I was, I was I'm happy to. I was curious about the, the purpose, resilience, and connection um, as a kind of a because I know we're drawing to a close a little bit. And um, purpose and connection, I guess, are things that we can physically do something about as an organisation because they're probably inputs, aren't they? So you can define a purpose, you can share it, you communicate it, you can get people to believe it. And the stronger that purpose, the more colleagues will be aligned. And if you can get people from countries to pick up a, um, leave their families, pick up a, you know, a, a weapon and go to war, and that's kind of primary purpose. I'm not saying that's a good thing, by the way, but it is. You can get people to risk their entire lives for that, for, for a purpose they believe in. You can sure as eggs and eggs get, get, get uh, people to sell more burgers and co coffee cups and whatever, because you're not putting your life, your life at risk. So purpose is definitely an input. Connection, we can create the opportunity as an organisation for connection, actually. And again, a lot of input back. And I do believe work is so much more than work. So that, that kind of hybrid model, uh, for those that have the luxury of choice um, in the office setting, I think is useful. So creating connections and tea parties and you know, things like this, that's, that's that. But in terms of resilience, it's a little bit more oblique. There are things you can do to, in terms of inputs. But actually, I think it's more of an output, an outcome, because it comes from within, doesn't it? It comes from self-awareness, things you can do something about. But it's a confidence, it's probably an outcome metric. I think resilience comes from, isn't it? So it's, it's things that you can do around, but ultimately, it's an outcome of um, all the things that you can put around as an organisation to help people really thrive and strive. And whether it's self-awareness um, is the higher power, or whether it's confidence, or whether it's resilience, they're all, it, it kind of much of a muchness, isn't it? But, the, but if you're going to focus real energy on two, probably about purpose and creating connection and then, and then having support mechanisms to, to, for people to self-discover, build for confidence in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of building greater resilience. And that was really naughty of me to pass the ball there, wasn't it? <laughs> it was entirely your prerogative. No problem at all. <laughs> what was actually going through my mind was um, something that maybe wasn't directly related, which is why I did that. Um, but I think for me, connection um, and goes back to community, to belonging and Across the world, it varies, but in the UK, certainly in the Western world, so many of us don't live anywhere near our family members anymore. We don't have community around us. We're trying to do jobs, and we're trying to run households, and we're trying to study, and we're trying to socialise, and we're trying to you know, take up new sports or new hobbies. We're, we're, we're doing all this stuff, but we're doing it on our own, mm -hmm. and we don't all have that person at three o'clock in the morning that we could phone that we know that would be there for us. So I think you're right, Nathan, you know, work is much more than work. And it's no longer that, you know, leave your personality at the door when you, you, you start working. You do have to be able to bring more of yourself to work, the appropriate part of yourself to work. Mm -hmm. However, 
it's, it's how I think my question back out would really be how do we engender that community in the work environment because we don't necessarily have it in the home environment anymore. Mm. Mm. Tom, can I, one last point, because I want to allow some time for questions, but um, I have a real issue with the word resilience, because to me, it's saying to somebody, you, you know, you need more resilience, you should, be, you know, I can teach you resilience, and it implies that you're defective in some way, because you need to develop resilience, and that by association, it's, well, if you're suffering with your mental health, that's because you haven't got resilience, and that's because that's a weakness. And I, I hate that whole mm. dynamic. I don't know if you just want to. Yeah, I don't. I don't use the word mental toughness for that same reason. You yeah. don't like resilience. Yeah. So I don't think I, I personally like mental toughness is resilience. But resilience for me is, means many different things. I think it's kind of how we frame what we think resilience is. So resilience for me would be could be um, asking for help. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a resilient attitude to ask for help, to ask your partner, to speak to somebody on your behalf, or to get some help on your behalf. But um, I'm not wedded to the word resilience, <laughs> but I, I, am, I am really keen that um, I do think the environment can play a part in resilience. I don't think it's just up to individuals. I think um, the environment and the systems can support, as I say, the psychologically informed environment that can support individual and team, team thriving or well-being. Um, and I, and I, I don't think, I'd be really interested to hear everybody today I just think there's a, there's a long way to go and there's people, in, there's people who live on this earth, unfortunately, who just put tasks above everything. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's really frightening and it's really um, disheartening and it's up to everybody in the room and all, all the people we know to, uh, you know, kindness, how can kindness be a theme? You know, how can we get kindness and empathy through? Because people put profits and tasks and and for me, it's not performance or well-being. I think they can be together, and I think you get performance from well-being. Yeah. So, um, but and we need really to allow people to. really on spot now because top three tips for psychologically healthy workplace. Everyone wants Goodness. this. <laughs> can everyone help me, please? <laughs> um, where it's okay to feel, where it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. So, how can you create an environment that is okay to ask for help? Um, is one, Jen? I think. I think it's not focusing on what you deliver but equally important how you deliver it and really instilling that mentor in your workplace mm -hmm. like that. I would say this because um, I'm also a coach but I'm an executive health coach um, so I believe that all leaders should learn how to listen and how to coach and I'm slightly going on the provocative side, but it's probably important to understand. When you breed a strong high-performance culture, sometimes you end up tolerating high-performing jerks, okay? Mm -hmm, yeah. And when you tolerate high-performing jerks, it creates a culture in the organization which you can never go back, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you want to create a safe, psychologically good space, you've got to really draw the line as to what you will tolerate and what you will not tolerate. The no asshole rule. No asshole rule. We, we live by that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, just, just my point of view, I think the other thing about psychologically healthy workplace is leaders need to be accountable. Mm -hmm. And actually, people need to be able to say, you're being a jerk. Yeah. You know, and then you need to listen to that and go, I am actually being a jerk. Maybe I won't do that next but time. It's all well good saying that, and I agree with you, but it's bloody hard, excuse me, to do that in a workplace when you've got a hierarchy and you've got yeah. people yeah. who are mentioned. So yeah. what, how can you make it normal to have that two-way feedback upwards yeah. which we all talk about but it's very hard to actually do in a workplace uh, but I think it's coming because if you look at the younger generations entering the workplace they see work completely differently than we do mm. and when I interview people they're interviewing me mm. and they want to know what I can offer them and it's a completely it's a total change of dynamics so unfortunately the people I call the dinosaurs who are in a lot of high mm. places in big organisations they're going to find out very quickly that nobody wants to work in those places unless they unless they wise up I also think if you're if you're not prepared to speak out then you instantly become part of the problem not the solution mm. in the same way that um, uh, silence on racism is is yeah. not is not acceptable so you have to speak out you have to Correct. talk to it yeah. and I you know if you're not prepared to die in your organization for what you believe in then you're definitely part of the risk is you're part of the system which yeah. isn't going to change and you know, stability and no change kind of will prevail. Yeah. And that's, that's an, you know, when you, it's easy to, to turn your back on that stuff, but actually 
it's, it's more uncomfortable, but therefore, but more purposeful yeah. to say, hang on, wait, wait. you know, cur- there's always there's always privacy, there's always courtesy, there's always one-to-one, there's always coaching and counselling your words. But actually, most people, unless they're um, in, you know, most people, and I like to see the positives in people, would take it if you did it appropriately. You're listening to the Eaton Bridge Partners podcast. At this point in the event, we took some questions from the audience. The first was how do leaders overcome their fear of cultural change? My one quick answer would be um, trying to find the root of their fear. Part of the answer will almost certainly be that bag of confidence waiting for you as you leave, which I don't have the language to talk about menopause. I don't have the language to talk about LGBT plus. I can't even... I can't even hold the string of letters together anymore. I've no idea what plus means. So uh, help, help me understand that. So it's about confidence, about education. And therefore, if it's, it is about confidence, how do you get through awareness, understanding to knowledge, and then knowledge to action? Because if you're, if you're flailing around in the, I don't know, the ignorance phase, that's the space where fear grows. If you can move through awareness, okay, I'm, I'm consciously... Uh, I'm conscious that I don't know enough now, consciously incompetent, and then you move through the stages, to, and then you've got, that's the, as, as confidence grows, and I can use LBGT plus po- positively and without getting embarrassed or giggling behind my hand, then I'm, I get to a place where actually I can now lead, lead for this thing. It's about confidence, I think, for me. Not exclusively, but it's a, a little bit about confidence. I think that comes up quite a lot in the context of disability as well, because people don't know the language, and they actually don't know what to say mm-hmm. and they don't they just feel awkward um in a way that you know they just don't have yeah, you know the, the way the way to deal with it and 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 it's awkwardness and sometimes people perceive it as you know um unpleasant treatment but actually it's the person's issue not the not the person with a disability I, and you know just to give give a real life example way back in 2012 when the, the focus on LGBT was much lesser. I was in India working for Thomson Reuters, very values-driven organization. And you know, we started an LGBT network in Bangalore, and there was some pushback in uh, the, the employee population. And one of the employees actually wrote to our CEO, Jim Smith, okay, saying that I'm a practicing Catholic, and this is against my beliefs and stuff like that. So the, he actually responded to it, and I think that was the best example of leadership I had seen. He acknowledged the fact that in Catholic religion, you don't believe in this kind of thing, and I respect you for that, okay? And in the same way, I also respect the fact that a man can fall in love with a man and a woman can fall in love with a woman. So, and in, our, in my organization, both of them need to exist and exist in harmony. You may not become friends, but then both of them will exist, so I'm not changing this, okay? And that, I think, was a fantastic statement, which gave lots of stuff. And, you know, I was one of the people who set it up, and I used to joke with my boss, who was Scottish, uh, let's do this, let's take the risk. The Indian government won't arrest you because you're Scottish, and, you know, they would never arrest you. They can't arrest me because our jails are not wheelchair accessible. So, let's go take the risks. (laughs) (laughs) The second question from the audience, how do you deal with this seduction of overwork and obsessive working patterns? It is a real problem, it's still a challenge for us and we are trying to temper it in terms of role modelling good behaviours, in terms of you know our CEO sending out his weekly message saying everybody log off now, it's been a really hard week, you know, let's really set the tone from the top in leadership and there are other things that we can do in terms of our email sign off saying I might be keeping unusual hours at the time but that doesn't mean you have to, which sends a signal to your team and your colleagues and your wider industry. But I think For me, this is an amazing, exciting moment because inclusion professionals are basically positive disruptors. You know, so this is a moment where I can really look under the rug and say what works, what doesn't work, where the policy changes, where are the, you know, infrastructures in our organisational strategies where we can really embed inclusion. And just to the previous point, I would say the risk of not embracing this conversation as part of your strategy becomes the risk. The risk of not doing becomes the risk, sorry for clarity, because your competitors will take your talent. So, you know, I've seen that already, you know, in the massive disruption in our own industry. Netflix and their absolute focus on culture has been a massive shake and disruptor for the world, um, as well as our industry. So I think it's changing. So I think the, you know, really 
seeking to have relatable role models, putting parameters in place so you really don't get seduced by the glamorisation of overworking is part of your overall strategy to mental health and wellbeing. I think certainly you have to um, call it out. I've got somebody in my team who, who thinks it's great to work non-stop and I say, I don't think it's big or clever. I think it actually makes you an idiot because you're working too much, it's not sustainable, your home life is non-existent and actually you're a team leader and you are modelling a really bad example to people in your team who will think that you're working in that way because I'm making you. And we both know that's not true. But it is, it's her issue. But um, unfortunately, in some organisations, you just get people who, who just can't switch off, you know, and they want to keep going, want to keep going. And I, I just keep making the noise, you know, go to the gym, do something else. You know, I don't want to see you online on the day that you're not supposed to be working because you're pissing me off now. Um, I don't know if anybody else wants to add anything to that. Yeah, I think for me, as you probably can tell, I think stories sell, right? So I think that the role model goes beyond the kind of individual conversations. I think that it's really important that we've got the leaders in the organisation sharing the things that they're comfortable sharing that they've experienced, that they've gone through. Perhaps they've ended up being seriously ill because they were overworking or they were burnt out in a previous organisation. Maybe they've had another life experience that they've gone through that's impacted on them. And I do think that when we see our leaders talking out, we get to see them as human beings and whole people, rather than just seeing them as the person that we've got to deliver for, or we've got a deadline, or something else that instills us with that sense of, you know, there's this rigid box that is our relationship with the people that we work with. So I think somehow or another, where it's appropriate, people opening up and sharing more of who they are outside of the workplace helps as well. Thank you. I'm going to hand back to Olivia because we have to wind it up. Some of the panel will still be available for the networking afterwards if you've got more questions. I'm sorry we didn't have more time. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for coming today, to our fantastic panellists in particular, and of course to Karen for, for coming back again to help us, and also to uh, the people who've joined us on the live stream as well. So it's easy to forget that we've got people joining us virtually in this new virtual world. Um, so I'd like to thank them too. Um, we're going to be writing a summary paper that will circulate to you after the event, but there's a few things that have been covered this morning that I'm going to really think about today. Um, right at the beginning, Jen, you said the, the, at the heart of this is doing fewer things but doing them better, and I think if we can take that today, that's a really strong message for us. Um, the world has shrunk. More people have seen most of my children naked over the last 18 months than I would have ever imagined. Um, and everyone has been into my office in my home and I've been in theirs and that's a hard thing for lots of people to deal with and to have over a, a sustained period um, so thinking about how the world has shrunk and how we've got so much closer together in ways that we weren't expecting um, has been helpful Tom you gave a great analogy of surfing that I'm going to use I'm a terrible surfer um, and I don't ever want to do it again but I thought it was a fantastic um, analogy so hopefully we can play that back in the article too um, and that long-term cultural change, whether it's about mental well-being or more broadly, requires courage, transparency and fortitude. I thought that was a great word that you added in. Um, we've talked a lot about kindness um, and I think that's also at the heart of what we're trying to do here. As I said, we've been live streaming this and recording the conversation, so we will share that afterwards and the article too. Please share that discussion, share this discussion with the people that you work with um, and, and your networks. Um, and I think I'd, I'd kind of close with two things. We talk all the time in our business with our clients about the difference between positive action and positive discrimination in the inclusion space. And of course, lots of what we're doing at the moment, especially in the HR practice, is talking about diversity of shortlist, diverse candidates, etc. But I think we've moved the conversation today, hopefully, away from just that to positive disruption, which was your phrase, Jen. And I think that's really um, a brilliant way of thinking about it. So we don't have to just, sorry, Karen, think about the legalities of it, but actually, what are we really trying to do with our actions? So thank you all for coming. Um, in these times, it's important I say stay safe, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next year. <laughs>